Thank you, Tibbs. Have you done any chore? Just, just, okay. Um, no. <laughs> um, great to be with you online and in the building. Uh, before I preach, just a little bit about an event that's happening here next Saturday. We've been talking for a while about Rob and Pam Scott Cook and uh, the fact that Rob is stepping back from operational roles that Wood is do, continue to be that mighty man of prayer. And, and likewise... Um, Pam as well. But next Saturday we're having a, an opportunity to celebrate their decades of work and ministry in this city and in the Woodlands Church family, all the different churches they've represented and beyond. And in fact we're going to have 500 people in the building to do that on Saturday night, which means that the more than 2,000 people linked with our church family and other family and friends, we haven't been able to fit everybody in. So it's watch online if you haven't got a ticket. And if you haven't got a ticket by now, um, there probably aren't any. But, um, but what we would love to do is to make sure that everyone who wants to gets a chance to celebrate Rob and Pam personally. And there's a couple of ways you could do that. If you get my email, put your hands up if you get my email. All right. How many people actually read it? It's a much smaller number. I, I, I send out um, almost 1,900 emails every week on a MailChimp, and 50% of them are opened. And I know which of the 50% you are. Anyway, <laughs> it, you know, it, it might go in your spam folder. You might send it to your spam folder. But if you do go to that email, you will find there is a link to something called the Kudos board, which gives an opportunity for you to do an online tribute to Rob and Pam in a lovely presented form that we're going to print out for them. So you can do that, go online, add your Kudos. Or if you'd like to tangibly give a card Saying something nice about Rob and Pam, if you can think of anything, can anyone? Anyway, you probably can. Um, then we're collecting cars. Probably there's a little basket out there in the foyer, actually, tonight. But you can, you can get them this week to one of us, either here directly or to, to me personally, to my house. Um, we'd love to present them on Saturday night, not just with a couple of tangible material gifts, which we've got for them, but also a whole bunch of wishes, cards, uh, legacy stuff. So if you can do that. That would be fantastic. And it's probably not too late to bake a cake either for the occasion if you want to. That's all on my email. Right, none of that's part of my sermon. Breathe. We're going to start. Over this month, we have been thinking about the church and asking the question, the church, boring, irrelevant, hypocritical. Tonight we're on hypocritical. The question is, is the church those things or perceived as being those things? In my lifetime, year on year, the church shrinks. And that's been going on for a long time. Why does the church shrink? Is it because we're busy on Sundays? Maybe. Is it because we've got lots of extra working hours or distractions? Maybe. But is it possible that people in our culture think that the church and Christianity is boring irrelevant or hypocritical or all three is any chance that if you think that's likely raise your hand and wave it at me all right so probably some of you have talked to people who felt that way in reality i think the church should be the opposite of those things the church in the first century a.d the church birthed after the day of pentecost was so not boring, it was exciting, but it was also dangerous. And I have a conviction that church 
should be safe, but also dangerous and exciting, something that you can give your life to be part of. And actually, literally around the world, people do do that, don't they? Is the church relevant or, or irrelevant? What If the church was missing from our society, would it make any difference? I think if you talk to people in Bristol today who are involved in some of the most pivotal issues that we're facing in terms of social care, in terms of strategic developments of, of all kinds, if Christians weren't there, if the church wasn't there, then in many ways I think things could collapse that are very significant in our city at the moment. I don't think the church is irrelevant. I think it's doing some extraordinary things, and many of you are doing extraordinary things. In fact, I talk to men and women in this church family alone, as part of the greater church in Bristol, who are doing amazing things that are touching society in so many ways, politically, socially, artistically, in all kinds of ways. The church isn't irrelevant, and it must not be. We are not here for ourselves. At Woodlands, we say, we are here to see Bristol transform with the love and power of God. And that means pressing into areas of challenge. I mean, just this morning, we interviewed Joy Nurkham, who's talking about the three schools that we go into as a church, coaching vulnerable kids. That's Neil and Joy. Who, Neil Humphreys there. Give us a wave, Neil. I was just talking about you, Neil. <laughs> But it's all right, it's a hot evening. But um, if you want to get involved in a project, like that, there's so many things. Actually, Matt Dobson, who was hosting tonight, helps champion things in our city that we can volunteer for. Talk to Matt. This is how I want to be involved in city transformation. But is the church hypocritical? Hmm, interesting, isn't it? I mean, what is a hypocrite? Well, the, you probably know that the word comes from the Greek. Uh, a play actor, somebody who wore a mask. But in Greek drama, people wore masks. And actually, a hypocrite is someone, we, we believe, whose who's inner life doesn't match their outer life. There's a lack of integrity. And the church can be accused of being hypocritical because it seems not to always demonstrate what is said on the tin. People have got really high expectations of church, don't they? They expect church to care for the poor to live sacrificial lives. They expect sexual purity from a church. And if a church kind of stands for sexual purity and then you've got clergy who abuse kids or you've got church leaders having affairs or all that kind of stuff, what business has the church got to talk about sexual purity when it's riddled with, with issues and problems? You know, the, the, the church talks about caring for. Isn't the church really wealthy? You know, all, all those kind of stuff. Does people perceive the church as being hypocritical, I think? And that is a turn-off for them. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves really perhaps is, are, are, first of all, are we hypocritical? And I want to think a little bit about the, sub the subject of judging people. I don't know if you've ever felt judged. You felt like you are being treated by someone as a slightly outcast, a bit beyond the pale, but what you've, you've, the way that you are as a person... They just feel they're standing aloof over you and look down at you. Has anyone ever felt like that? You know, I think, I think it's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Let me just read to you what Jesus says about that. Hello, here's my tax return. Just put that in a safe place. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is the words of Jesus. Do not judge. 
and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use will be measured to you. Then he goes on to say, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from a brother's eye. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Those words of Jesus. And it's not just Jesus that says don't judge. Many, many times the New Testament, Paul, James in particular, they tell us not to judge, not to be judgmental. So are we, let's just read that passage from Romans actually, it's coming up. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. Whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Paul's writing. It's quite clear, isn't it? So why is it that we are so prone to judge? Why are religious people so prone to judge? This is very topical, isn't it? Let's think about America this week. Think about the issue around abortion. Now, it's perfectly valid to have um, a, a strong point of view about the rights of unborn children. Of course it is. But it's not okay to talk about people in abortion clinics leave this place of iniquity. You know, that, that kind of the language that actually is starkly condemning of people who've actually got a value system, whether or not you agree with it, around what they're doing. And many people who are kind of compassionate people who are in the business of trying to help people and have a pro-choice agenda. And I'm not going to comment on the issue of abortion or not at all, except to say that whatever stance we take, we are not, I don't think, entitled to, to be judgmental about it, but rather to enter into an understanding of what motivates and drives people who think differently to us on something. So we'll we'll return to the the whole sense of of empathy in a minute, but it's such an issue, and and actually that will affect the reputation of the church, and particularly, wasn't it, because the same people who are pro-life are seen to be pro-guns. And people say, well, isn't that hypocritical? You defend the right to bear arms that allows mass shootings, and yet you... Anyway, so there's some tensions, aren't there? This is complex stuff, isn't it? So, the church has a reputation for both being hypocritical and judgmental. And so we've got those stories of abusive practice in the church, and at the same time people feeling condemned by the church. So here's a few things to say to start off with. The church and church leaders are not perfect. You may have spotted that. (laughs) But it's so important that we acknowledge our humanity. One reason why church leaders mess up is because people don't challenge and confront church leaders about basic issues that are human 
that those people are subject to. And we are not, we are unwise if we put people on pedestals and feel that somehow they are above making mistakes, feeling pressure, being tempted. And of course, the Bible doesn't do that at all, does it? What the Bible does is it gives us windows into the lives of leaders of the people of God, both in the Old Testament, the leaders of Israel, and the New Testament, the apostles, and it exposes them as just very raw, real people. People who make profound mistakes. People who have messed up family lives. And even the best of them in the New Testament, you know, even Paul and Barnabas quarrel. Even Peter, after his denial, then shrinks back from doing the kind of leadership that he does. And um, we are not holier-than-thou people as church leaders. We are vulnerable people in need of pastoral care, in need of confrontation from time to time. And uh, that definitely includes me. And um, in fact, the, the best that we do comes out of the grace of God. Let me just read to you what, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. For we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Honestly and speaking, for me, I know that my Christian life operates out of the grace of God. The good bits are all down to him, the bad bits are down to me. You know, there's anointing, there's the gift of the Holy Spirit, there's grace for ministry, there's a whole lot of stuff, there's forgiveness. There's God who's made me in his image and has put certain gifts to me which, which he allows me to use. But the good bits are his, and I can mess up. My um, hero, John Wimber, used to say when he got, he got some praise, I'll, I'll take the encouragement and pass on the glory. Because at the end of the day, it's God who does the good stuff. And those churches like Paul says, look, I'm the chief of sinners. Yeah, God uses me because of grace. That's the dynamic that we're in. So let's not mistake grace from moral perfection. The Bible's really honest about what people are like. All of us, leaders too. And it, so we need a culture of honesty and vulnerability where we don't put people on pedestals. And we need to have also a culture in church that doesn't, put the emphasis on a few sins and say these are the really bad ones and ignore the wider issues. I think the church has kind of um, got a reputation for being really negative about sexual sin. Now, um, all sin is sin. And it was great that we, we had some series on relationships. We, we talked quite frankly about sexual sin, and sexual sin can be deeply damaging to people, isn't it? People can be really hurt by other people in the realm of sexuality because it makes people vulnerable. But um, in the words of, 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 uh, of some of the fathers of the church, and, and, um, and Dante, with the purg purgatorium, you know, the, the divine comedy, sin is disordered love. And for, for, the, for the early church, for the church fathers, for the, the Catholic church, for, for Dante and all that sort of stuff, the kind of the sins 
that are not as serious as others are things like greed and lust because they're, they're a bit more superficial. They're disordered lust. The real sins, the really deadly sins, are pride, bitterness, the fruit that actually doesn't just have an appetite-driven thing, but a deep intrinsic soul level writes people off. And actually, sins of religious people tend to be those kind of sins which can be more destructive, ultimately, than the sins of the flesh. So let's not kind of major on one category of sin and ignore all this stuff. It'd be a bit like what Jesus said. Take the log out of your own eye when, when he's trying to take the speck out of someone else's eye. And for Jesus, of course, he encountered that spirit all the time, the religious spirit that looked down on the kind of people that were immoral. You know, Jesus who hung around with prostitutes and tax collectors, who were a bit shady characters. But those people found it easy to enter the kingdom. But the people who were proud and arrogant found it really hard to enter the kingdom. And on top of that, those people, religious people, they really liked their money. You know, they did not have a generous spirit in their heart towards people, and it translated into their wallets. And there's something about the generosity of the kingdom of God. There are often people who are a little bit more broken in their appetites can sometimes demonstrate. I'm just saying, I think it's in the Bible, you know. And so let's not be niche about the, the kind of... Let, let's say all sin is sin. It just is. And all of it can separate us from God, separate us from other people and hurt ourselves. And, and the reason that God identifies it because he wants us all to be whole, not because he wants to condemn us. And so when we condemn people because we see them as sinners, we are actually cutting them off from the very hope, the very resource, the very caring that God wants to give them. And that doesn't mean to say that we should be casual about any sin at all. And actually, the closer we are to God and the, the more the Holy Spirit is in our lives, the more sensitive we get about much smaller things. But it's our tone, isn't it? So let's just think about judging. And the, the, the kind of um, thing that religious people are prone to. I think when we judge, we are standing over people and saying, I'm a better quality of human being than you are. I would not do the things that you do. I'm better than you. We're creating a little class system where I'm a kind of slightly more elevated human than, than you are. I would never do that. And therefore, I can condemn you for doing that thing. Does that, does that seem a, the, the kind of spirit? And I would say, a friend of mine was, was preaching yesterday, he says, you don't know what what quite was in the tube of toothpaste till it's under pressure. When it's under pressure, what comes out? And we don't know what's in our hearts always until we're under pressure. The pressure of, let's take it, war. Would we ever commit a war crime? Would we ever abuse somebody who was in our care? We just don't know because we've not been in that situation, most of us, in a war. Would we ever fall, would we ever commit adultery? Well, maybe we've never been tested. Maybe we've never been in a really unhappy marriage. 
Maybe we've, we've never had the experience of powerfully and dramatically falling in love generally with somebody, but we're already married to somebody else. We would never. There's a whole range of we would never do this. But actually, it could well be that we've been protected by our circumstances from the pressures and temptations that other people have been in. And one of the things that, that I think the heroes of faith show us, if we like, is they acknowledge that people like us sometimes do things that people like us are really ashamed of doing. And there's something about empathy that says, if I was in your shoes... I would feel and behave or understand what you're, what you're doing. And empathy and identification are key to the heart of God. Jesus came into the world, not to condemn the world, he said, but to save the world. And the pathway that he chose was to identify with us and to live through things that we also live through, which expose him to, to pressure and temptation. And, and the Bible talks about a, a, a God who, in human form, it's tempted in every way, such as we are. And who, the Bible also tells us that because he sympathises with our weaknesses, he prays for us before the throne of God right now. The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus like that, as a divine intercessor who's praying for us and who understands what it's like to be human. And so many religious people have an idea of God as the remote, pure, unmovable mover who is entitled to judge and to pronounce and to condemn. And the Bible speaks of a God who came in and lived among us and who speaks words of advocacy and comfort. In fact, the Bible says the one who is the accuser isn't God, but the Satan. Technically, that's what the word Satan means. It's a legal term. It's a court of law term. It means the accuser. And what God has given us, instead of the Satan to accuse us, is the Holy Spirit to be our advocate, to be a comforter, to speak on our behalf. Do you remember the woman who was caught in adultery that John records in John chapter 8, who's brought before Jesus by a bunch of men? And Jesus just says, he who is without sin cast the first stone, because the punishment for adultery was being stoned to death. He who is without sin cast the first stone. He invites them to have some empathy. Are you really pure? Are you really wholehearted? And he's the only one who could have cast the first stone, the sinless one. Who is it that condemns you, he says to the woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, leave your life of sin. I'm not saying what you've done is just okay. But what I'm, I'm saying is I want to call out from you your true dignity as a woman I want to empower you and lift you up to start again and to start living out of the image of God in you. And I'm not going to condemn you. Jesus says, actually, doesn't he, in, in John 12. And I'll just read that verse. Is that up there? Got my little, um, little Bible, my little glasses. John 12, 47. If anyone hears my word, doesn't keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And we're on that mission from God. We're on the mission of Jesus. We've come 
to be involved in a mission to save the world, not to judge it. But that, that does present a bit of a dilemma, doesn't it? Because if we're not to judge, then are we allowed to comment on moral issues at all? Are we allowed to exercise any discernment or choice between what is right and wrong? Well, first thing is, what's in our heart on that one? I think our heart is mercy. There's a, there's a tension set up between justice and mercy, um, and James comments on it in his letter. And what he says is, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, mercy and judgment are both in the heart of God, actually. But in the heart of God, mercy triumphs over judgment. God's priority is mercy. That's what he wants to do. He does not want to judge and condemn. What he wants to do is to show mercy. And he's always creating context to allow mercy to be shown. And actually, the process of, of calling people to repentance is really God opening a door by which he can show mercy. The process of calling people to repent is not primarily about judging people, but about rescuing people. It's about giving people an opportunity to access the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so actually, when we, when we say this is something which is from, from an evil place, this is something that hurts God, hurts you, or hurts somebody else, but if you turn from that, God can offer you salvation and wholeness. We are not condemning. We're actually only a door of mercy because we do it and we say, and I know this because that's what God has done for me. I'm standing in a place of empathy alongside of you. I'm not standing over you and saying, you are a sinner, you need to repent. You're saying, sinners like you and me can find grace from God if we repent. It's a different attitude, isn't it? It's the spirit of empathy rather than the spirit of judgment that ultimately dehumanizes other people and says, you're less of a human being than I am. What we're trying to do is be human beings made in the image of God so that God can draw out treasure for us. So we've got to choose identification. And if we don't choose identification, we will probably be choosing judgmentalism. And I don't know if, if that is... Um, a tip for you going out into living a life in the world. And of course, we come across some horrific things from time to time. And uh, I, there, there needs to be some balance about all of this kind of thing because there are sometimes people who seem to be caught up with the power of evil where they're almost partnering with the demonic. You know, some really dark things. We're not saying that that is something that we empathize with. But what we are saying is, I understand that it's possible to partner with the demonic. And maybe I've done that in small ways too. You've done it in large ways when you organize a concentration camp, when you authorized whatever it is. But are we saying, I am not capable of partnering with the demonic? That sounds heavy language, doesn't it? What I simply mean by this is, when Jesus said, do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? We can do that. I can do that. I think, and I'm, you know, honestly and truly, I think from time to time I've partnered with the demonic. I've allowed stuff that really comes from the enemy of God to be part of my thinking, to empower my life, rather than God. And I've needed to turn from that and turn away from that. 
And I don't want to go too far down that pathway because I don't know what I could become. But I think the potential is for human beings to become like the angels or like the demons. We have that potential, each of us. And the little choices that we make can take us further down that road. And so again, I'm choosing identification, not judgment. So um, I guess I'm going to come into land. We live in a culture where social media drives ideological judgment. You encounter it all the time, don't you? The things that we are not allowed to say because we will be condemned, we will be judged. We'll be judged by what we eat, by our, our views on a whole range of subjects. We will, we, we will encounter vitriolic abuse online. I've had some. You know, I've been judged. And one of the ironies, of course, is that the church, that can appear judgmental, is also judged by people who say the church is judgmental without any evidence, you know? They, they just write us off already. So there are some subtleties in this, aren't there? But our job is not to be judgmental back. If we can listen to our enemies, that's great. If we can listen to those who oppose us, if we can represent their argument as well as possible so that we really understand them, that's wise. That's not to say we don't not stand for things. We want to partner with God and stand for the things that God stands for, but to do it in the spirit of mercy, not in the spirit of judgment. And at the end of it all, who, who do you know that really needs mercy? And who is it that you let off the hook day after day? You forgive all the time. It's probably you. Who's the person I'm most merciful towards? Me. I know my inner darkness better than anybody else's. And I forgive myself. I let myself off the hook. I show mercy to myself all the time. Do you do that too? I mean, some people may, may not do. You may actually have something that's the opposite of that, something toxic, a toxic self-hatred. But I, I think that for, for many of us, we, we do let ourselves off the hook. We understand mercy because we identify enormously with us. We have a profound empathy for ourselves. I give myself excuses for shortcomings all the time. And I know that I need mercy. So for me, what I would love for this church, I've said it many times, is I would love a big banner over us that said, mercy triumphs over judgment. That I'm living under the mercy of God. I'm not living under the judgment of God. I'm living under the mercy. And I want to see what mercy looks like. And, and that's a challenge for us. You know, how do we welcome in our midst, as we do from various, from time to time, you know, people, sex offenders who say, I'd love to be part of a church family. How do we do that? How do we welcome people who have had a really checkered past and feel shame and feel I can't really be open about myself because I'll, I'll be judged and condemned? How do we welcome people who may really disagree with our point of view, but actually want to follow God. And we say, how can you want to follow God and believe that? But those, those are men and women who love God. I, you know, I love the, the spirit that Rob Scott Cook has. I remember a few years ago, um, 
we had Steve Chalk speak at this church. Steve Chalk, right back then, was a, a controversial figure in the Christian church because of his stance on LGBTQT issues. And um, we invited him to speak here, and Rob prays for him often, you know. And, and a church leader wrote an open letter to other churches in Bristol, you know, attacking Rob for doing that. And Rob's response was, I'm sure this man thinks he's pleasing God by what he's written. Do you see the difference between judgment and mercy? The judgmental spirit that says, you cannot possibly accommodate Steve Chalk in your midst because he's a heretic and he's standing up for things that God hates. Versus the spirit that says, here's someone who honestly is trying to do what they think God has told them to do, so I'm not going to retaliate in anger, even if I think they're misguided. That's the point. So, let's try and avoid being hypocritical. If I'm going to point the finger, I'm going to point it at me. You know, I'd planned this evening just to reference an old song, which goes, It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And not my brother nor my sister. Can you sing it with me? <laughs> not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. The chorus goes, It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Look, I've been at this church for 26 years. I've never sung that song. We sang it this morning at our 8 o'clock service because my friend Nicola introduced it to us during our prayer time. And I plan to sing it tonight. I think there's a prophetic message in that. I think God's saying to us, actually, it's you that need prayer. Search your heart. What's going on with you? Before you take the plank out of someone else's... Oh, no, that's wrong. <laughs> Before you take that speck out, take the plank out. You know your own stuff. Well, if you're working on your stuff, it'll be easy for you to work on someone else's stuff because you'll do it with gentle hands, not heavy hands. That's all I want to say, really. Thank you for listening. That, that, that's our little series on the church. Can we resolve to be not boring? So that means you've got to do some dangerous things. Can we resolve to be not irrelevant? That means we're going to try and get in where the action is in our culture right now. It might be the environment. It might be the arts. It might be social justice. Can we avoid being hypocritical? By the grace of God, let's try and be honest before God about who we are and what we are as a church. We're a bunch of messy people trying to follow Jesus. The good stuff happens because of the Spirit. The bad stuff happens because of us. God gets the glory. We've got treasure in jars of clay. That's us, isn't it? Jars of clay. Let me pray. Father God, you search us and you know us. You know where we mess up. And you know our secret history, the things that no one else knows. And you've chosen to have mercy on us. Help us to show mercy to other people. Mercy that triumphs over judgment. Help us when we challenge people to confront them in love and to call out the treasure in them. And say to them, don't go that way. Don't partner with darkness. Partner with light. Help us to see men and women as beautiful people made in your image. And when we don't agree, to speak words of love in our challenge. In Jesus' name. Amen.